corticosteroids, which is really the backbone here. This is the workhorse. If you've got patients who are coming in with knee osteoarthritis, even to a certain extent, hip osteoarthritis, often done through radiology, etc., corticosteroid injections remain strongly recommended. That's Dr. Tom Appleton. He's a rheumatologist at St. Joseph's Healthcare in London, Ontario, and a clinician scientist and assistant professor of medicine at Western University, where his research focuses on osteoarthritis. He's back as our guest for part two of our interview on OA, this time with a focus on treatment. Welcome back, listeners. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined by our newly promoted co-host, Dr. Janet Pope. How are you doing, Janet? Great, and thanks, Dan. I'm really happy to be here, and I hope to stay uh, promoted. (laughs) Right. I hope so too, Janet. Before we get to our guest, I want to announce some upcoming episodes on a whole bunch of interesting topics, including Sjogren's disease, auto-inflammatory diseases, and IgG4-related diseases. If you have questions you'd like answered by the experts, please contact us through the CRA Twitter account, that's at C-R-A-S-C-R-Room, or by email at info at room.ca. For our Clinical Pearls episodes, please get in touch if you have an interesting case you'd like to present on the podcast. Now on with the show and our guest, Dr. Tom Appleton. All right, so Tom, we're ready now to talk about treatment, which is what I'm excited for. And there's a lot to talk about here. I think there's pharmacologic medication, there's non-pharmacologic, there's surgical, and then there's the D modes that Janet had mentioned earlier, things in the pipeline. Maybe we start with the some of the pharmacologic I- injections. So I would love to hear kind of your, your overview of the common stuff, steroids, hyaluronic acid, but also things like PRP, dextrose injections, and, uh, and, and maybe stem cell injections. I would really like to get kind of a fulsome view of what you think is appropriate. I mean, I think the, the field has long been fascinated with the concept of joint injections, and I think it's really important to just keep that in context. You know, really what we're talking about there is mostly larger joint injections, so things like knee injections, and that, that's, that's fine for um, patients who are presenting with monoarticular disease or maybe oligoarticular disease. Um, what often gets sort of lost in the shuffle is the large group of patients who have uh, polyarticular osteoarthritis and you know it's often not practical and and certainly you know there wouldn't be enough of a reason to do it but even if you did have a really effective injectable d mode it probably would not be practical to to provide that as a therapy for people who have you know 10 tender and you know semi swollen joints in in hand osteoarthritis for example so mm-hmm. you know it's important to think about the right patient phenotype for these kind of interventions Um, In the latest set of guidelines from the American College of Rheumatology released in 2020, there are some of these injections that are addressed and they went through the grade approach and and they talked about, you know, uh, strongly recommended, conditionally recommended, conditionally not and strongly not recommended. So, you know, when it comes to things like corticosteroids, which is really the backbone here. This is the workhorse. Um, If you've got patients who are coming in with knee osteoarthritis, even to a certain extent, hip osteoarthritis, often done through radiology, etc. You know, corticosteroid injections are strongly recommended and they remain strongly recommended. And this is even after Tim McAlinden's study from 2017 that got quite a bit of press 
because they showed using uh, three-dimensional MRI uh, measurements, very, very sensitive, that when patients were randomized to corticosteroid injections, the standard 40 milligram triamcinolone that we would do versus uh, placebo, so saline, uh, every three months for two years, that's a lot of injections, by the way, over two years, more yeah. than we would typically give for the vast majority of patients. Mm-hmm. But the point of that trial was to try to show whether it was indeed disease modifying to repeatedly inject corticosteroids. And actually, they found that not only did they have no difference in, in, in pain outcomes after two years, they had a slightly thinner cartilage in the group that received corticosteroid. Now, you know, really it comes down to how much because it has to be clinically relevant to be a concern. And it was, you know, 0.1 uh, millimeters, so 100 microns thinner in the corticosteroid group. And essentially what that equates to is over uh, over a subsequent 20 years, you would maybe change by one KL grade or Kelgren-Lawrence grade on the radiograph. So, you know, they considered this at, at the ACR and the panel also included, importantly, I think, a, a group of patients. And they all said, you know, the pain benefit that comes from corticosteroid injection, notwithstanding that it's very short-lived for the majority of people, is still so important to people suffering with this disease that it should be included. And they didn't consider that that cartilage thinning effect of so many repeated injections um, to be clinically meaningful. So, you know, it, it, it still remains the, the clinical standard. Um, it, it is an effective short-term therapy, and I think corticosteroids can, can still continue to be used uh, to manage this disease and likely, uh, likely will, regardless of what the guidelines say, I think. Um, when it comes to the rest of the, of the injectables, you know, I think we really have to have uh, a critical eye on the evidence. So you listed quite a few of them, Dan, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and maybe you have specific questions about, about different ones. You know, there, there's a lot to go through there. Sure. Um, when it comes to hyaluronic acid injections, these, uh, have been studied in, in many different levels of study quality. And when you meta analyze the studies that really would fit the level one evidence criteria, uh, they don't have any clinical meaningful benefit over steroid and in many cases over saline injections, and yet the cost is much, much higher. And so the standard refrain is hyaluronic acid injections are not cost effective uh, and you know probably don't have a major role in the management of the disease when you can continue providing corticosteroids. Mm-hmm. Um, and those you know, hyaluronic acid injections also come in a wide variety. So you also have to be wary of, of comparing apples to oranges there. Um, after that, the evidence level really drops off quite a bit. But I actually, the probably the biggest headlines in the last 12 months have been with PRP injections. And, and you know, there's been a lot of clinics that provide PRP injections. Mm-hmm. Um, there were two RCTs that were published in JAMA uh, within the last 12 months, actually in close succession to each other, both uh, out of two different sites in, in Australia. Um, and both showed no clinically meaningful benefit of PRP injections in ankle osteoarthritis and in knee osteoarthritis. Well-designed, you know, clinical trials, randomized, double-blind, placebo control with a, with a saline injection uh, as the control. So, you know, the, really the best evidence that we've had to date, and unfortunately, 
uh, both negative trials. So, you know, I, I don't think there's a bright future for PRP at this point. And, you know, the, the commentary I would have there is, you know, PRP is autologous. It comes from the patient themselves. So, you know, you're talking about a very heterogeneous treatment that's being processed and then injected back into the joint. Um, from every single patient, it's really a different treatment. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a bit tricky to think about how that, that might actually work. Mm-hmm. So Tom, yeah. Tom, just to kind of drill down more deeply and no pun intended. Yeah. Um, so platelet rich plasma for those who aren't aware what PRP is. Um, I, I, like I, I realize there's a lot of negative data and I certainly haven't done it and I don't advocate for my patients to get it with the, the amount of data we have right now. But I can say those JAMA trials, like if you inject someone, you can't expect in 6 to 12 months, most of what we'd inject would have any long-term difference. And in fact, intraarticular steroids, saline, NSAIDs, PRP, visco supplementation, uh, in the long term, they're all as good as placebo or saline. And I think it's because as well, the endpoints seem to be a lot longer. It'd be sort of like saying, I'm going to give you two months of methotrexate for your RA. And in a year from now, because you've had 10 months not on it, we'll see if it worked. So I, I do wonder if trial design has a an issue. I'm not I'm not advocating for these other things. I'm just Wondering, though, that if we're going to damn it or we're going to promote it, we probably need to know is the expectation that you'll feel better on pain or function in the next two months as opposed to 12. Yeah, I think I think your point is really well taken. And, you know, what are there's probably quite a lot we can learn from the PRP movement, um, as it were. Um and, and I agree with your comments about clinical trial design. That really should be applied across the board. Clinical trial design and osteoarthritis needs a major overhaul. Um, I, I know that the industry is, is well aware of that and is working hard on that. Part of it is due to the need for uh, better outcome measures development. And part of that is, is just a rethink in terms of the philosophy of, you know, early intervention, uh, you know, having classification criteria for the right patients to be included in those sorts of things. But just setting that aside, so, you know, what can we learn from PRP, platelet-rich plasma injection? You know, I think it's kind of the early generation of anabolic therapies for osteoarthritis. And, you know, we can talk about that when we talk about demodes, but, um, you know, anabolic therapies do hold great promise for the management of osteoarthritis. And I think PRP kind of leans into that concept a bit. You know, platelet-rich plasma is a mix of growth factors that are produced by, you know, largely and secreted by activated platelets. And and so what you're trying to do is leverage that and get it into the joint. And to your point, if that's really going to be effective, you probably need to have continual or at least pulsatile repeated exposure to it in order for it to be really effective. And I don't think that that's how it's currently being used. It's kind of a one and done sort of thing. And, and, and that's not likely to be effective in the long term. I completely take your point. The reason that the primary outcomes were longer in those trials is because some of the earlier trials that were done with other generations of PRP were essentially showing no response until the 12 month endpoint. And so the, the reason that that was selected was to say, okay, well, if that's where it's previously been shown to have any efficacy at all, we'll make it the longer endpoint. Uh, for that reason. But I agree with you pathophysiologically and just how, how the, the drug, if you want to call it that, would work. 
um, it, it's more likely to have a short-term effect and you're going to have to repeatedly give it in order to have it uh, sustained. So I'm not advocating for it either, uh, but I, I, I think that what we should really be doing is try to understand what are the active ingredients in PRP? What are the effective growth factors or peptides or uh, endosomes that are being released there and try to manufacture those into a high enough dose that would be standard? Because, you know, when you're talking about taking platelet-rich plasma from somebody who has, you know, diabetes and hypertension and is on four or five drugs or many more than that, and hoping that that is going to be as effective as, you know, your soccer player who's in their early 20s and has no comorbidities. I mean, those are completely different therapies. So, you know, let's find out what actually works here and and leverage that and see if that can make a difference. So I just wanted just to, add, to close out the injections uh, section. Um, Tom, any specific comments on, I was actually just asked by a patient today about some of these prolotherapy or stem cell uh, therapies. Right. So also very different approaches. So prolotherapy, trying to improve cell function by providing a, a high sugar kind of uh, injection, really need much better design trials. And I would say the same thing about stem cell injections. So stem cells, which come from a wide variety of sources right now, um, really have not been shown in any well-designed clinical trial um, to, to have any meaningful benefits. But again, the trials just haven't really been done very well. And we're not really sure which stem cells should be used here, let alone how they actually work. Um, I'll, I'll just add one comment that, you know, cells that are injected into a joint are rapidly cleared. And probably one of the most potent effects of clearing cells is an anti-inflammatory response by the, guess what, macrophages, so innate immune cells in the joint that are doing that cell clearance. Mm -hmm. So is it that stem cells are helping to have a bit of an anti-inflammatory effect? Okay, if that's the case, then instead of injecting whole cells, why don't we figure out what it is that's causing that anti-inflammatory effect and try to leverage that. So, you know, I, I don't think we're there yet. These are very expensive therapies that are out there. I think as rheumatologists, we should be advocating the things that really have been shown in well-designed clinical trials to provide meaningful benefit and, in, and, you know, and encourage people to be involved in research and try to answer these really important questions so that we have good quality evidence in the future. Yeah. Just a, one comment is like, looking through some of the PRP literature, um, there's a couple of meta-analyses that have been supportive. And I think like the uh, one of my concerns there is, well, kind of like deeper in the papers where they talk about like risk of bias and things. Um, that's really, you know, crap in, crap out. <laughs> so if you, if, you, if you put a bunch of studies into a meta-analysis that, that really just shouldn't be reviewed, they really shouldn't, um, you know, form, help us form an opinion, you are going to get a meta-analysis that may support a treatment that when you, you know, subject it to proper RCT um, uh, style uh, trial, you really aren't going to see the benefit that's there. And, and and so I think that's really helpful that you've contextualized that. And sorry, Janet, I, I interrupted you. No, that's fine. So I, I wanted to go as we're finishing off on steroids. Um, is there a favorite intraarticular steroid, number one? And number two, when do we stop? Either it stops working or do we have this magical number above which we are not supposed to exceed? Right. So a lot of this stuff comes from sort of eminence-based uh, medicine. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of head-to-head -head trials with 
with with those sorts of uh, of interventions. Um, there is a small body of literature looking at triamcinolone hexacetonide, which is championed very much by our pediatric rheumatology colleagues, um, in particular for the the longer lasting kinetics of it. So you know potentially needing fewer injections over time. In the adult world, there's a very small number of trials. We probably should do another trial of head to head of hexacetonide versus acetonide, so long acting versus short acting. But really, what I've seen in the adult literature is actually potentially just a slightly larger delta in terms of the actual effect, so pain reduction with hexacetonide. Um, I don't know about the cost eff effectiveness of that, so that would be something that would have to be looked into. Um, but uh, but hexacetonide is very interesting, and there are other long-acting forms of triamcinolone that have been uh, made available in the states because of uh, because of superior efficacy over short-acting triamcinolone, but we unfortunately don't have access to that here. In terms of the frequency to address that piece of it, you know, I think only treat inflammation if it's there is sort of the rough rule of thumb. And this is just, uh, this is also eminence-based, right? So, you know, take this with a grain of salt. But, you know, when we, we look at patients in the clinic, we're looking to see, do you have synovitis? And actually, we'll even look at things like ultrasound to see, do you have OA-associated synovitis in your joint? And if it's not there, we don't inject it. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, treating inflammation is 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 an important aspect of it. Frequency could be every three to six months, but, you know, we all have patients who come in and they're still inflamed a month later and we'll do it again. So mm -hmm. I think you tailor to the patient. So, Tom, just one last comment on that. So um, I was always taught, you know, if there's no effusion, don't do it. And then I decided that I'd like look into my teaching and there was really no reason that I could understand. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do tend to think that intraarticular steroids are also analgesic. And if someone um, can't tolerate as a, or has failed Tylenol, so acetaminophen, NSAIDs, or they're old and the NSAID is a high risk, I kind of have thought that I'd rather give an intraarticular steroid injection as an analgesic benefit, give them a couple months relief and do it maybe every three to six months, as you say, instead of going for low-dose narcotics, especially if they're not surgical candidates now or maybe not won't be because of comorbidities in the future. So is that not like, am I, I maybe I was pretty anecdotal thinking that way, but I, I don't seem to think in clinic in OA that whether they have an effusion or not makes a difference in their analgesic benefit. On the other hand, only people that come back are ones in whom it helped or they wouldn't come back for another one. Yeah, your, your comments are, are spot on, Janet. I, I, I think that's totally fair. And you know, really, we aren't talking about high quality evidence guiding these decisions. So, you know, clinical experience does uh, take over in this case. You're absolutely right. Uh, corticosteroids are analgesic. That's part of how they work. Um, I guess really what I'm referencing are um, studies that have looked at the likelihood, so predictors of response to so your basic kind of Cox proportional hazards model, who's going to respond. It's the people who tend to have synovitis with osteoarthritis. The presence of an effusion is probably the most strong predictor of having a response to a corticosteroid injection. But that doesn't mean that the people who don't don't have any benefit from it. And you're right, if that's, I mean, this is a local therapy and it's an awfully safe therapy to give somebody, uh, especially when you're talking about NSAIDs with their side effects, when you're talking about um, opioids, you know, we don't really do that so much anymore in osteoarthritis, but, you know, there's lots of side effects from systemic therapies that you, you may not want to turn away from. A local injection may be completely fine. So I, I think your comments uh, well taken there for sure. 
So then maybe we'll move on to oral therapies and uh, I'll maybe uh, feed these to you like one at a time instead of a big giant list. But um, so so first, I'd love to get your take on and in whom you use uh, topical and oral NSAIDs. When is that appropriate? Yeah, so I, I think we have some guidelines that we can we can lean on in this case, and and so those are based on you know evidence review and a, a large panel of experts. So so I'm I'm very happy to to lean on that that's available. You know, the topical NSAIDs have kind of been shown not to be very effective in hand osteoarthritis. Paradoxically, you would sort of think it's a shallower joint. It might be easier to get it in there. Um, but the evidence would say no, that in fact, it's not nearly as effective in the hands. And it's more effective in knees. And don't use it on the hip because it's just too darn big. But um, so knee osteoarthritis is really the only place where topical NSAIDs are, are really recommended at this point. But yeah, I think you have to have uh, sort of cautious expectations there. And if patients say they tried it and it's not working, I wouldn't persist with that. Um, it's kind of an either it helps or it doesn't sort of scenario. Um, in, in patients who don't have substantial comorbidities, that's where oral NSAIDs would come into play. And certainly, um, you know, strong recommendations for oral NSAIDs in patients without comorbidities is the current state of the evidence. Um, and, and I think the other thing to, to factor in there is, you know, ma- this is based on the evidence where you're using maximal dose NSAIDs. Um, you know, lower doses, you know, not not using them frequently, that sort of thing is has been shown in many studies to really have no no effect size that anybody would want to uh, to 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 write home about. So, you know, we're really talking about maximally dosed NSAIDs in those cases. So make sure that they they don't have renal failure, they don't have cardiovascular disease, and so on. And then uh, you mentioned hand OA in there, so I'm curious uh, if you. Uh, prescribe or use duloxetine in, in regular practice? Yeah, so I think the strongest evidence for duloxetine is in patients with knee osteoarthritis. Um, and then there's a couple of studies that have looked at hip and knee osteoarthritis. Um, there is one trial that wasn't uh, terribly strong for any effect. It was a negative trial for duloxetine, but there are multiple others that have been shown to be positive. And, you know, this is where I will lean into clinical experience a little bit here and say, you know, duloxetine is an SNRI. And so it's really going to have an effect here on peripheral nerves, nociception. And it probably has the best impact on patients who have become sensitized. Mm. And we see this in the clinic quite a bit. So if you provide uh, duloxetine to somebody who has intermittent joint pain, they're very unlikely to come back and say, thank you so much. Um, and they're more likely to say, well, I probably have some sort of side effect like headaches or GI upset. You know, there's no serious AEs with this, but people really feel kind of crappy if they do end up having side effects. Mm-hmm. So you want to pick the patients who are most likely to benefit. And the ones who have sensitization, uh, and I'm talking mostly about knee osteoarthritis at this point. So pain out of keeping with what you would have expected based on the physical exam, a lot of tenderness around the soft tissues of the joint. That's as a result of having chronic knee osteoarthritis, probably chronic inflammation mediated is what the evidence would say. Um, mm-hmm. They're most likely to develop uh, or to, sorry, to have a response to duloxetine. So, you know, pick and choose carefully. Um, I've also heard people say, oh, you know, it's more likely to work in people who have fibromyalgia or widespread pain. Um, that's not what the evidence would say. The evidence would say it's mostly in people with local knee sensitization. 
And 30, go up to 60 if tolerated in a partial effect. Is that kind of what you do in a month or two? Yeah, exactly. The standard dosing is 30 for three weeks and increase it if you're tolerating it well. And I think it's it's one of those meds that is unfortunately dose limited by tolerance and it's mostly GI upset. Um, and so you just kind of start them and, and make sure it's okay before you go up to 60. How about chondroitin, glucosamine? Um, what's your counseling there? Yeah, lots and lots of studies on on chondroitin and glucosamine. And, and there is um, with chondroitin sulfate specifically, not with glucosamine, but chondroitin sulfate specifically, there's a very, very, very small effect size of benefit in terms of pain reduction. So you need large numbers of patients in clinical trials to be able to show this. Okay. And it's uh, it's o- it's only with, with uh, certain brands that have been uh, studied in Europe. So you know, I think I think in terms of yield, and you know, think about polypharmacy a lot in this patient population. If you're going to go for any sort of add-on oral therapy, you want to pick something that's going to have a larger effect. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I I I don't usually recommend it. I, I don't think it causes a lot of harm, um, yeah. but I, I think you have to have pretty low expectations. So I have a question when we're starting. Um, The recommendations for a long time were up to 3,000 to 4,000 milligrams of acetaminophen, and then if not, NSAIDs. And I remember trials where they said, well, they're about equal, but they weren't. Even the first New England Journal trial, NSAIDs were better, but the safety margin and uh, if it was a prescription NSAID, the cost was a bit different. But these days, has that flipped or how are you going to start someone with, I'll say, a polyarticular, whether it's two knees, um, oligo, or whether it's, you know, hand away with uh, 12 joints or something? What what would be your recommendation first of the two? Well, first of all, I would approach those two scenarios quite differently. And and really, the first line management for the, the patient with knee osteoarthritis should be uh, physical activity and, and neuromuscular exercise. And we haven't had a chance to really talk about that stuff yet, but mm-hmm. you know, that really should be where things are starting. And then if they're still having refractory symptoms, then talk about the, the pharmacologic management. Most patients have tried acetaminophen before they come in, you know, especially when you're talking about in a rheumatology clinic. Um, maybe they haven't yet tried it if you're in primary care setting. Um, but interestingly, when they get referred to rheumatology, they often haven't tried a whole lot more than that. So, you know, it does make sense to go back to first principles and, and ask those kind of questions. Um, the evidence would say that if you're going to get any kind of clinically meaningful effect size, you'd need to take acetaminophen three to four times a day at a, at a thousand milligrams each dose to, to really get there. Um, but I, again, I have low expectations for that. And, and the, the recommendation is conditional and it's really based on having very low effect sizes. Um, so I would typically go NSAIDs first. And I think that could work in either of those scenarios for knee osteoarthritis or for hand osteoarthritis, or, you know, frequently patients have both. Um, and, and certainly, you know, choosing an NSAID that is convenient for somebody to take. So a once a day NSAID is much more convenient than a twice, twice a day. Um, and certainly more than something that's every six hours. We'll be right back to Around the Room after this message from the CRA. As virtual care becomes a common aspect of rheumatology, there is a need to learn and practice a more standardized approach. The CRA has developed a series of online training modules on the best practices on how to navigate a virtual space. This educational resource is a Section 3 practice assessment activity, and it's made exclusively available to CRA members. For more information, 
visit www.room.ca and look under Continuing Education. These virtual care modules are supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Novartis. An independent CRA Scientific Planning Committee was responsible for putting together this content. And now, back to the podcast. So then, kind of closing out oral therapies, I'm curious um, if you can give a comment on Plaquenil and methotrexate for inflammatory OA. Um, I, I have seen that uh, a number of times um, working with different rheumatologists, and I'm curious uh, what your take is on that. That's actually a really interesting area, and there have been some really large trials that have been done in the hand osteoarthritis field for, for let's start with hydroxychloroquine. So hydroxychloroquine in the UK HERO trial was negative, and it was negative for many outcomes, and it was negative for even subgroups of patients, whether or not they had synovitis on an ultrasound. So, you know, the, the expectation for meaningful benefit from hydroxychloroquine in the setting of hand osteoarthritis uh, is much lower than it, certainly than it was. But the one caveat I will say is, you know, we use hydroxychloroquine very frequently in patients with CPPD. And the overlap between CPPD and hand osteoarthritis is very blurred. And we see people come in with that kind of a, a, of a CPPD-like hand involvement with, you know, MCP2 and 3, you know, often asymmetrical. And, you know, those people would, would be quite reasonable to still consider hydroxychloroquine in. And then we also have patients with osteoarthritis who develop secondary chondrocalcinosis. Mm -hmm. And secondary chondrocalcinosis in OA is actually not from CPP. It's actually from BCP, so hydroxyapatite deposition. And it also has a pro-inflammatory effect, causes this similar kind of crystal-like reaction. That has not been really studied at all in hand osteoarthritis with hydroxychloroquine. But it's tempting to think that sort of anything crystal-mediated might be still a candidate for hydroxychloroquine. So I, I still mm -hmm. think you'll see people using it, but you know, certainly the abundant evidence right now would say that hydroxychloroquine for hand OA is not likely to be effective, but also most things in hand osteoarthritis are not effective. In knee osteoarthritis, things tend to be more effective. And we're really waiting on uh, Phil Conahan's study to be reported. And I don't know if Phil's going to listen to this this podcast, but uh, Phil, if you are listening, please uh, get this one out. But they they showed their methotrexate knee osteoarthritis trial at ACR a number of years ago, pre-pandemic era, and uh, showed a positive effect with a meaningful clinical effect size in patients with radiographic knee osteoarthritis. There is an ongoing trial of methotrexate in patients with quote-unquote inflammatory knee osteoarthritis, meaning they have to have uh, uh, imaging-demonstrated synovitis in order to be included in that trial. And uh, so I think you can see that people are still optimistic that methotrexate can work for patients with an inflammatory subtype, which probably mostly means patients with knee osteoarthritis that's more active because they have synovitis. So we will see. I think it's still totally reasonable to consider that in patients who failed all of the other uh, appropriate evidence-based goal-directed therapies in knee osteoarthritis and who have synovitis, um, but it should only be done by rheumatology where you've got appropriate supervision. I, I think as well, I'm always wondering when on these trials, there was at least one or two over the years from India and the patients had a very high CRP. They had effusions. 
Um, they were described as being very warm effusions. If they looked at the synovial fluid, which one of the studies didn't, but if they did, I would imagine quite inflammatory. I'm always wondering if they're actually mislabeled, if they're an oligo-inflammatory arthritis um, sort of thing, psoriatic of one joint or two joints. So um, I'm not... I, I'm sort of skeptical that the OA that I tend to see in clinic is not methotrexate deficiency, so to speak. They're later, they're bland, <laughs> that kind of thing, right? I think we don't see these early ones often. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, if you're if you're picking patients who who might be appropriate, you know, it's going to be the vast minority of of patients who might be appropriate for that sort of thing. So I certainly don't want anybody to walk away from from this thinking that methotrexate is going to be a commonly used agent in the management of osteoarthritis. I really don't think that's the case. And you know, methotrexate and almost every other biologic DMAR that has been repurposed to try to treat osteoarthritis has failed in clinical trials. Same comments about trial design can still be applied here, but, you know, really across the board, IL-1 therapy, IL-6 therapy, GMCSF therapy, and all the rest have really TNF. sort of shown nothing, TNF. TNF, have really not shown any meaningful benefits in, in terms of, of management of osteoarthritis. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Janet, you know, this is a different disease with a different pathophysiology. Should we be thinking about things like anabolic treatments? And that's really where the field has shown the most promise. Um, I, I'm intrigued about your hydroxyapatite or appetite because we can't find it on, uh, you know, looking under the microscope, so to speak. And then talking about CPPD and knowing that there is calcification, calcium pyrophosphate deposition. So um, what about colchicine? Yeah, so there there is a lot of interest in colchicine, and of course, colchicine um, is used to treat auto-inflammatory disease, some auto-inflammatory diseases as well, where you know you've got innate immune system uh, overactivated, and you know there are overlaps in in osteoarthritis, so it makes sense to think about that, but. You know, unfortunately, there, so there was a trial called the Cole-Chris trial that was done and in patients with knee osteoarthritis. So sort of taking all comers, not selecting on whether or not there was crystal disease, uh, or at least chondrocalcinosis in those patients, but just taking all comers, you know, there was no really meaningful benefit there. But I think we've all seen patients with knee osteoarthritis come in who really talk about a flaring, remitting kind of pattern. Again, a minority or subset of patients, maybe a different phenotype, if you will, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, if you if you look at their x-ray, they see you see chondrocalcinosis. So, you know, if the goal is to try to prevent those flares or just deal with those flares as they come up, then maybe it's reasonable to try that. There's no trial that's really looked at that. Um, but you're talking about a relatively safe therapy that, that could be tried is certainly on an on-demand basis. Uh, to try to quell those flares as they happen. I think that's reasonable, but I think we just we just need better studies to try to understand why crystals are forming in this disease and what effect they may have on, on the disease progression. Um, the best evidence is from Zahin and Yoji's group, I think, showing that, that it increases the risk of radiographic progression if you have hydroxyapatite or other forms of chondrocalcinosis, CPP included. So, you know, it, it is a subgroup of patients who are at higher risk. Um, but is it a primary driver or an epiphenomenon? I don't think we know that. So then moving away from kind of uh, medications and medical interventions, non-pharmacologic interventions, how do you um, kind of counsel patients on that? Where do you send them? What sort of therapies do you organize for them? 
Yeah. So, you know, as arthritis specialists, you know, we we certainly deal with movement and biomechanics and, you know, that's no more relevant than in the osteoarthritis clinic. Um, You know, I think first principles are let's try to address any of the biomechanical problems that may exist in this patient. Now, as rheumatologists, we are not biomechanics experts, at least I'm not a biomechanics expert. But I think that we can appreciate the importance of biomechanics and potentially pick out some major issues and get them on to people who are biomechanics experts. Um, A common refrain is, you know, we're not going to overcome any biomechanical problems by using medications. And so if we want our medications to have a meaningful effect for these patients, we need to correct any of the biomechanical problems that are existing here first. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the first thing that we'll recommend, and this is very much the top of the pyramid of the guidelines, is neuromuscular exercise. This has been studied in more than 50 randomized clinical trials. And neuromuscular exercise can mean different things to different people, but essentially what it means is muscle control. So things that stabilize your joint. And in the case of knee osteoarthritis, you know, patients frequently have either gait disturbances or they have muscle weakness in quadriceps or hamstrings, muscle groups that cause them to put unduly uh, abnormal strains on their joint. These can be relatively simply corrected with either just basic neuromuscular exercise training. It's gentle. It doesn't take a lot of effort. We're not talking about heavy weightlifting. We're not talking about endurance exercise. We're just talking about stability and control. And this is what is really supposed to be first-line management offered by a physiotherapist. Could also be offered by an occupational therapist. Anybody with expertise in arthritis can can provide that. So Mm -hmm. the evidence would say uh, a 10 to 12-week uh, program of, uh, of of neuromuscular exercise will provide clinically meaningful improvements in inpatient symptoms. That so, Tom, Tom, you yeah. mean like um, quad strengthening if it's NeoA? So, quad strengthening might be part of it, especially if there are quads deficits there. But it might also be weakness in another muscle group, or it may simply be coordination. A lot of people actually develop just sort of n- neurologic control deficits because of chronic pain in their joint. And so just almost retraining how to walk again is a big focus of what the, of what the physiotherapists are, are trying to do. Um, it might be something as simple as a toe in gait. It might be something as simple as just being mindful of how much your knee is being pushed forward as you're walking. But almost all of patients will go through some sort of balance and control or stability kind of exercises, which will, you know, re- which will recruit and improve quad strength, but that's not necessarily the primary goal. And Dan, on the as an aside, this is part of um, one of Tom's trainees' research area on uh, gait and how it would help knee away and I guess improving oh, wow. gait over time. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, Tom, do you ever do you counsel at all on uh, weight loss, or do you do any um, prescribing of splinting, bracing personally, or do you kind of uh, do you kind of outsource that to physio to decide on that? I mean, weight loss, I think, is one of those things that needs to be tailored to the individual. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. lots of of, uh, slim people with osteoarthritis as well. And so, you know, weight loss may not be appropriate for them. Um, But obviously, obesity is is a major risk factor for developing joint disease. 
and uh, and and so counseling about that is an important part of what we do. And I think that you know whether you're treating psoriatic arthritis or you're treating osteoarthritis or other forms of disease, weight loss is going to improve effectiveness of almost any therapy too. Mm-hmm. So we should all be thinking about that. In OA, the evidence is five um, percent body weight loss is all you need. So it's really not about massive weight losses. And I think sort of you know, providing that achievable goal for people is really important. And then I think we also need to move beyond the move more, eat less oversimplification of, you know, why people are overweight um, is, is also something that we need to, to do. And, you know, I, I, I'm not a weight loss expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I think helping patients get to either dietitians or, you know, whatever it is that may be effective, you know, we have bariatric clinics for people who are suffering with, uh, with morbid obesity. Um, you know, we have apps that can help with sort of the, the psychological experience of it, you know, whatever it takes, just helping people do that, I think can make a difference for their overall health and for their arthritis. I think 5%, like that, that's such an, uh, an interesting uh, kind of number to counsel on because like if someone told me Dan lose 5% I'm like I-, I think I could do that if someone told me lose 20% like uh, there's no way I could do that. that that sounds so impossible but maybe that sounds bite-sized enough that it doesn't come across um, as a throwaway comment of like well if you lose weight you'll feel better without any kind of limit on that like well then if I keep losing weight will I keep feeling better this seems that 5% is kind of a helpful prescription. And not uh, dehydration target. and diarrhea by real weight <laughs> loss. That's going to stay right. more than the weekend kind of thing, right? Yeah, um, can right. I ask you about orthotics? So way back when, um, my training for my um, 20 minutes training in rheumatology, I um, fellowship my 20 minutes of training on orthotics. Um, the idea back then was that anybody with lower extremity osteoarthritis uh, orthotics might have some positive benefit is that still the thinking and, and, and i realize we won't get into it here but there's orthotics and then there's orthotics right there's firm and uh, very expensive and ones that are probably not very cushioning but is the thinking without getting too uh, technical that if we can kind of um, i guess not just improve gait but kind of cushion the gait that we could help knees or hips yeah, I think that's the the underlying uh, rationale for for thinking about orthotics. You know, I, I'm I'm not an expert on this at all. It's probably best to ask an occupational therapist or physiotherapist about it. But you know, I, I think that the effects of orthotics are really quite small or negligible, and really depends on the person and what their lower limb alignment issues are. So you know, maybe better to think about other things that might fix alignment a little bit more dynamically so again back to the gait and and neuromuscular exercise training i think that's going to be much higher yield the other thing that is really starting to take hold is the cons especially for patients with varus alignment so people who have the uh, their knee alignment being pushed out side of their uh, of the normal hip to ankle angle um, that's a really big risk factor for, for rapid progression. And, um, there's a surgery called a hip, uh, a, sorry, a high tibial osteotomy that is done to straighten legs and, and only for people with, you know, severe varus alignment. So this is not for all comers, 
But if you do have somebody with substantial varus alignment and they're early enough in the course of disease, you know, this has been shown to reduce the rates of joint replacement surgery out to 10 years. So if you're in a center that has access to that, that might be more of a sort of stable permanent alignment thing. The, if you don't have access to that, then it's kind of back to what Dan was bringing up about unloader braces. And, uh, and for people with varus alignment, unloader braces are, are certainly recommended in, in the ACR guidelines. Sleeve braces can be effective too, but the unloader brace probably has the best evidence. So then moving kind of towards the end of, of my list of questions here, um, I'd love to hear what the future of OA looks like to you um, and maybe touching on the D modes would be really great to hear about. Yeah, well, I, I'm all really optimistic about the future of this. And, you know, I think it's it's one of the greatest unmet needs in our field. And I'm encouraged at the number of people who are working in this field that seems to be increasing um, all the time. And I think the the excitement and advances that have happened in the rest of rheumatology and the immunology space have led to opportunities for us to learn uh, in, in the osteoarthritis space. And I think other, other diseases too, including cardiovascular disease and including cancer in, partu- in particular, the tumor microenvironment has led to better understanding of what's happening in, in joint disease. So there's, there's quite a lot coming. Um, there are early hints that there are uh, effective therapies coming in terms of, of D modes. There have been two trials that have been positive for structural change. So, you know, preventing radiographic progression or reducing it and actually in one case, even, even reversing it in the case of, uh, of, of cartilage thickening. Um, some people will be aware of the forward study. So this is, uh, uh, an injectable therapy called Spriferman, which is, uh, an FGF 18 factor. It gets injected in the joint repeatedly, uh, to Janet's point about using something repeatedly over time. If you want it to be effective, well, yeah, no kidding. Um, so in this case, the forward study was done and, uh, and, and showed th- increased thickening of cartilage over two years. The only fly in the ointment is that those therapies haven't actually led to important pain reductions. And so, you know, really what people are thinking now is that this probably is because we're not studying it in the right way or we're not studying in the right people. And so that's where future trial designs are going to have to evolve to say, okay, let's look at it in an early stage disease. Let's look at it in later stage disease. Let's look at it in people who are refractory to this therapy and that kind of in the same way we do with, say, an RA trial program. You'll start with, you know, treatment naive and then move on to methotrexate in inadequate responder and so on and so forth. So, you know, I think we're starting to see that evolution of thinking in the OA space. Um, you know, that what I'm talking about is a very, medication-centered kind of future in terms of D-modes, but I think that's really where the biggest gap is right now. We have surgical treatments for end-stage complicated disease, and we have good rehab therapy interventions for people with early-stage disease. Those need to be implemented better, and I think combination therapy in terms of combination rehab, analgesics, anabolics, and things that will come down the pipeline will ultimately lead to the best outcomes for patients. And so those those combination treatment algorithms, I think, are going to take a lot of really smart rheumatologists to uh, to come up with the studies and to analyze the evidence and, uh, and help disseminate it for the world. Wow. So I, I have one question, and it might be a myth, um, 
But because we are going to have really an epidemic um, that people are living longer, the baby boomers really demand more stuff, more like they want to have better quality of life. They want to be more active than, say, their parents or grandparents. And because of the fact that the BMI in North America and Europe and Australia and elsewhere is going up, which is, you know, not uh, it's confounding and a risk factor. Um, I still do see and do suggest uh, PRN NSAIDs for some people instead of chronic because of um, looking at safety and benefit. So as a, for instance, if someone plays golf twice a week, you do want them walking. They have fun with their friends. This preemptive analgesia where they say, you know, most times I can just put my topical on my knee or I don't need anything. But when I do my 18 holes, I would feel a heck of a lot better if I took my ibuprofen, celecoxib, naproxen, what have you, diclofenac beforehand. Is that still okay to be preemptive if they really don't have symptomatology in between? So you're, I think you're talking about the, the patient with intermittent symptoms. Is that right, yes. Janet? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I agree. And and by the way, the the epidemic is here. I mean, it, it, there's already an overwhelming number of people with this disease. And yes, it's going to increase, but we, ha- we have too many already. You know, people need to live better quality lives with this. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, what I think whatever it is that allows you to be more active and to be engaged with the things in life that make you happy, that keep you connected with family and friends, um, are, are really important, valuable things. And it's not a bad thing to say, look, if this helps you feel better, then let's do that. And of course, there's risk with anything. But if this is a meaning, uh, a meaningful activity for you to be involved in, and, and it, you know, PRN NSAIDs help you do that, then that's, that's an important intervention for them. And I, I think we, we need to be prepared to help people uh, achieve that if that's if that's their goal, especially in the absence of something that's really going to be disease modifying. And I hope we get there. But even if we get there, I still think we're going to be dealing with symptoms as well. So just in the same way we are with our other autoimmune rheumatic diseases. So, you know, let's be prepared to, to combine and tailor therapy and personalize it uh, the way we always have. So Tom, just before we let you go, um, we're trying to get to know our guests a little bit better on the podcast. And, and so we're going to be asking everyone um, similar questions. But uh, we're curious, what are you reading right now? What's on your bedside table? Well, I, most of the things that I'm reading these days are children's books, Dan. <laughs> um, and they may or may not be chosen by me. So right. um, that's that's what I'm spending most of my time doing. I, I've, been, I've been reading uh, for the fourth time now, The Hobbit because the youngest of my my children, also a twin, hasn't heard it yet. So we're going through that. That's great. Well, Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate uh, you teaching me so much about osteoarthritis. It's always humbling when I I meet a a real expert on a topic. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I just want to congratulate both of you for the work that you're doing to help disseminate information out to the rheumatology community. Uh, I'm uh, a faithful listener looking forward to the next uh, uh, sessions that you have because there's a lot that I have to learn as well but uh, thanks to you both that's it for this episode of Around the Room for questions, comments and future episode ideas email us at info at room.ca or tag our Twitter account with your question at C-R-A-S-C-R Room Around the Room is produced by David McGuffin Dr. Dax Rumsey and Kevin Bajnoth We'd like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. 
And of course, an extra special thanks to Dr. Tom Appleton and Dr. Janet Pope. Our theme music was composed by Aaron Fontwell. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening.